Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. I did feel bad about Aaron and Benjamin. I was telling, uh, I don't remember who, Lakin, I think. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up on, on uh, watching The Karate Kid. And you gotta keep in mind, I spent the first several years of my life in Missouri and then moved to Georgia. And from my perspective, um, <laughs> Southern California seemed like, like the most awesome, amazing place, the greatest place that has ever been created by God. And I was like, man, this is gonna be. So I planned a two-week honeymoon down in Southern California. And uh, it was great. Uh, we had a good time. Uh, we went to the beach, did San Diego stuff, went to L.A., and, and we eventually ended up not quite Southern California. We ended up in the San Francisco area, but um, it was a great time. And uh, I, I just, yeah, I remember as a kid, like, California, just, that's got to be the greatest place in the world, you know. And so, um, so maybe, maybe the California of my dreams exists. Um, so, all right, Isaiah 47. I should probably turn there myself. We uh, took a little break from this section of Scripture. We took a little break from this section of Scripture, and we're going to uh, renew our study of it today. And I want everybody to make sure that we uh, have our thinking caps on because I'd like us uh, to practice uh, doing something, something at the end. I'd like us to practice... Uh, working out some theology, okay? Um, godliness is, you know, uh, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so godliness is defined in that verse anyway as a constant pursuit, something you have to be constantly working at. Secondly, it is a head, there's a part of it that's a head knowledge, learning more and more about the Lord, learning uh, facts about the Lord, learning uh, points about the Lord, or relearning important things. But far more than a, a knowledge, a simple knowledge, is a, a knowledge, a, a personal experiential knowledge of his grace learning to take what we know is true of God to the experience of God, making conclusions about God, learning who God is based on those facts. Okay, we can observe certain facts about a person, but we don't necessarily know their character. And theology is learning the character of God along with the knowledge of God. I hope that makes sense. Along with knowing facts, we know his person. We get to know him. And part of that godliness process is learning how to draw conclusions about God from what he tells us in his word. I'll, I'll, make a, I'll hopefully make a little more sense of that um, in a minute. But let's uh, go ahead and uh, go through Isaiah 47. My plan this morning is to read through it and give kind of a, a running, annotative commentary on what we're reading and then we'll save a little time at the end to do the work of theology, okay? So if you have Isaiah 47 open with me, let's, let's uh, read through that, make some explanation, and we'll go from there. Now, very quick review. Let's remember a few key things. 
this book, this section of scripture that we're reading, was probably written during the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a really prosperous king. Now, Isaiah wrote over the spectrum of several kings, and it could be that um, Isaiah was writing this to one of Hezekiah's predecessors or successors. Not sure, but this is in the neighborhood of Hezekiah's reign. This was a really prosperous time in Judah's history. This was the southern kingdom. They were growing. They had thrown off the chains of Assyria. Assyria had been defeated by the Lord in their presence, and it introduced a sort of golden age in Judah's history. There were uh, God comments that there were several um, points that several high water marks that hadn't been achieved since David was king or since Solomon was king. And so as we're looking at the history of Judah, this is a high water mark. This is a, an important time of prosperity for Judah. Well, it's in the middle of this it's in the middle of this prosperity that a crisis comes to them. I'd mentioned it a little bit before, but the nation Assyria was coming down south to wipe them out. And God told Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, I don't want you to worry about Assyria. I, I'm not even going to let them shoot an arrow over the wall. And sure enough, God sent them packing, um, minus 185,000 soldiers. Okay? And Hezekiah, unfortunately, didn't take... God's deliverance to heart. He did the thing that we all do when peace and prosperity settle over us. He did the thing that we all do when deliverance comes our way. There's an initial outburst of praise and rejoicing, but then eventually we begin to think that maybe we were the secret sauce in all that. That maybe we had something to do with that deliverance. Maybe it was something in our character or righteousness that God chose to deliver us, that there's some responsibility for our good that was us. And God is telling Hezekiah that that's not the case. And as a matter of fact, there's coming a day when Hezekiah's kingdom, after Hezekiah's long dead, when his kingdom is going to be destroyed, his kingdom is going to be judged by the nation Babylon. Now, God has a word for that judging nation. Now, as we read this passage, I want you to notice the past tense of it all. Okay? Let's go down to um, verse 5. Sit in silence and go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. What tense are all those verbs? What tense are all those verbs? Past tense. When do these events occur in relation to the writing? Have these events occurred yet? No, these events haven't occurred yet. They're still, at minimum, 70, 80 years out, 
maybe longer than that. So God is warning the people who are going to be his instrument for judgment. You're going to judge my people. And I'm warning you now, these will be your actions. This will be my response to your actions. Now, God fulfilled this prophecy. God allowed it to be fulfilled. But this was all written ahead of time to warn them from going the path that they were going to go down. They, this isn't retrospective. Uh, uh, this isn't a retrospective condemnation. This is a condemnation in advance of what God knows they'll do. And so it was their choice to behave the way they did. And we're going to go through in a minute and show you just how gracious God was to this kingdom of Babylon. Let's pick up our reading in verse 1. Let's go down through here. He says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Okay, he's saying uh, Babylon at the time of this writing was a new nation. It was a, 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 a war machine on the rise. And Babylon itself um, reveled in the fact that it was new to the scene. Uh, much like Alexander the Great would do in a future generation. It, we were a new thing, a new way of doing things. And they reveled in that. There were spiritual rights um, placed around uh, virginity in this uh, Babylonian cult. Okay? He says, instead of this newness, instead of this purity that you would say that you have, I want you to mourn sitting in dust, taking off your garments, putting ashes on your head. These were all symbols of mourning. And he says, you need to mourn. He goes, because instead of being called this new, fresh, young, pure kind of thing, I'm going to do something to you drastically. Verse 2, take the millstones and grind flour. Now, how many of you have ever taken a millstone and ground flour? Anybody? Okay. Why don't you, everybody show me with your hands how big you think a millstone for grinding flour might be. Okay. Uh, Jackson's the closest, okay, but only, but not very. Okay. <laughs> Millstones are like, true this. They were massive stones that had been cut out and they would bore a hole in the middle and they would make a circle that was kind of um, angled so that when you walked the beam that went through the hole, it would turn a circle. Does that make sense? And they had to be huge because they would put the barley grains in the, they, they'd have a, a stone base and then the millstone would sit on top of the stone base. This is why Jesus says it would be better if you put a millstone around your neck and jumped into the sea. In other words, you're going straight to the bottom. Okay, no, no questions. And you would, push the, you would push the beam in the middle of the millstone in a giant circle. And the people who had the flour crushed would have to take it out and put more flour in to be crushed. This was slave labor. 
This was something that slaves did. They would hook, uh, they would hook uh, donkeys up to it sometimes too. This was not easy work. <laughs> so what God is saying here is this isn't like some sort of nice, happy um, um, scene of baking bread. Uh, no, this is, this is slave work. You were at the top of the heap, and now you're going to be slaves. He's going to get a little more specific. He says, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, and pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. The prediction here is actually, was actually fulfilled in a very picturesque way. Um, it, was a, it was considered a, a shame, a disgrace for ladies to bear their legs in this culture, and it was the symbol of a prostitute more often than not. And God is saying, your women are going to be reduced to prostitution. Furthermore, when Cyrus came and took over Babylon, the refugees fled and there are written accounts to this day that have survived of Babylonian women trying to escape across the river so that they wouldn't get caught up in this sweep of Persian military takeover. God says, your, your, your ladies are going to have to run, and they're, they're not going to care about fashion. They're not going to care about what they look like. Their lives are in danger, and they're going to hike up their skirts and try to wade across the river out of mortal fear. That's what God's telling them. He says, I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, it's his name. This is the Holy One of Israel. He's telling them well in advance, sit in silence, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the mistress of the kingdoms. God is going to tell them, look, I judged my people. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. And God is saying, I entrusted them into your hands to do my work of judgment. But you have taken it way too far. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. There were forced marches. There was taking advantage of elderly people. And God is offended that even though he handed Jerusalem to the Chaldeans, they treated these people with no mercy at all. You said, I shall be mistress forever. And you didn't lay these things to heart, so you didn't lay these things to heart or remember their end. God is now going to sort of transition to his criticism of two things, their pride and their religion. Their religion was filled with self-affirmations, and it was a polytheistic, pantheistic type of spirit worship. They had all sorts of secret rites and ceremonies that were performed in uh, they're pagan temples, and they had priests and priestesses, and they worshipped the primarily the sun. They worshipped the fertility goddess. They worshipped all these other things. And 
they thought they were on the top of the heap, and in fact, they were for some time. And they were filled with pride and thought that it was their false religion, thought it was their gods that brought them this prosperity. And God says in advance, it wasn't that, and I'm judging you for this. He says, now therefore, verse 8, hear this, you lover of pleasures. Okay? <laughs> they've, they've, They've engaged in loving pleasure instead of loving God, who sits securely, who say in your heart. Now, this is particularly offensive to God. They say, I am, and there is no one besides me. This was their assessment. I am. They're robbing, they're stealing from God, whose name is the I am, who said earlier in chapter 42 and 43, I am, and there is no other. And remember, this prophecy was written about them ahead of time. They had this information ahead of time to know that God is the I am. Yet they're the ones saying, I'm the I am. There's none else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. They think they're going to dwell securely. Nothing bad is going to happen because nothing, has be nothing bad has happened. They think because things have gone well, they'll continue to go well. God says in verse 9, These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. Number one, the loss of children. And number two, widowhood. You're going to lose your kids and you're going to lose your husbands in a day. And God says, and I want you to know this is going to come really fast. They shall come on you in full measure. And they're going to come in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Again, he's attacking their religion, and he's actually going to get a little more taunting as it goes. Your magicians couldn't see this coming. Your sorcerers couldn't see this down the road. Yet it's God who's telling them these things before they're even a nation. Do you see that? God isn't saying this after they've already done it. He's telling it to them ahead of what they've done as a warning and as a grace for them to repent. Outside of Israel, and I guess an argument could be made for Egypt, Babylon received more direct revelation from the Lord than any other nation. God spoke to that nation through their prime minister, Daniel. And through his three friends, God made prophecies just like this about those people. God spoke directly to Nebuchadnezzar, both in dreams and in words, and allowed Daniel to live to Nebuchadnezzar's predecessor, I'm sorry, his successor, and the one after him. Two more generations of leadership would have access to the great prophet Daniel. Daniel had these writings in his possession, and they ignored it entirely. The very sorcerers and magicians who wanted to put an end to Daniel, who tried many times and ways to put an end to him, who saw Daniel get thrown, or saw Daniel's friends get thrown into the fiery furnace, who saw Daniel cor correctly interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, who saw all of these events take place in Daniel's life, 
These sorcerers, these magicians who had access to these words, utterly ignored it. And it is a remarkable thing that the three wise men who came, came from Babylon. (laughs) Those writings survived. And there were some who listened, who heard, and ended up worshiping at the Lord's feet shortly after he was born. It's really remarkable. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else. There is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Um, I read that in a different translation, and it could also mean that you can't buy your way out of. For as wealthy as you are, you're not going to be able to buy off Cyrus. He's coming, and you can't write him a check. Uh, Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you shall not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. So God says, in a sense, go ahead, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you might be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. He says the magicians, the sorcerers that are leading you astray, who are so blind they can't see the events that are about to come upon them, they're kindling. They're They're the ones who are actually starting the fire. They're the stubble that's the kindling. But this fire is not the kind of gentle, pleasant campfire that you roast marshmallows around. I don't think they had marshmallows back then, but maybe they did. Who knows? Whatever they like to roast before their fire, that's not this kind of fire. When I was in college, we went and helped a Christian camp in North Carolina, and they wanted us to lose a couple of um, buildings, a couple of cabins. And so we demoed the cabins, and we put them in a big pile, and we set them on fire because that's what college students do. Okay, and we did it with their permission, of course. The fire was so hot, we couldn't get from here to the door to that fire. It, I, I've never felt fire like that. It, we bought, like idiots, we bought um, like s'mores stuff. And <laughs> maybe if we had a fishing rod, we could have like cast the marshmallow down toward the fire and reeled it back in. But that, that's the sort of blaze that, that's the sort of blaze that God is talking about. It's, it's going to be intense. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, whom you have done business with from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Now, had Babylon turned to the Lord, God would have gladly 
removed his hands. Nobody has ever perished at the feet of, at the, feet of the Lord. Yet what kindness of God to predict this ahead of time, to expose them to these writings ahead of time, to get them God's man at the highest positions to tell them these things ahead of time. And despite all those warnings, they were hedonists. Despite all those warnings, they were amoral. They continued in their paganism despite all those warnings. Yet how gracious and kind of our God to offer the warning. He didn't have to do that. But here it is, in posterity. And when those people were on the run, those ladies were running across the river, they had Isaiah 47 to testify to their guilt. Okay, now, let's take a few minutes to do some theology based on what we've learned, okay? What have we learned about God? Now let, me, let me start one off, and maybe that will kind of help get the juices flowing. Um, this is an af- Let's think about affirmations that we learn, can learn about God from this passage. Here's affirmation number one, that God holds people accountable for words that he recorded a long time ago. God holds people for accountable holds people accountable for the words that he puts down even if those words were put down a long time ago. Okay? Nobody will stand before God and say I'm without excuse. And God I I mean the the number of bibles that our nation produces is astounding. People have God's word. And God's going to hold them accountable for it. It's a terrifying thing, but he will. What's another one? That's an example of the type of thing I'm talking about. Yes, Rhonda. Yes. Okay, let's, can you put that in a theological statement? A sentence that begins with God is. <laughs> yes. God is gracious even in his warnings. Or God is gracious because of his warnings. That's good. What else? Yes, Elaine. Mm. Yeah. Yes, God is patient. He waited and warned. That's right. What else? Yes, Kevin. Yes. God fulfills his promise. That is absolutely right. That's, it's remarkable how, how God fulfilled these very words. And even secular historians have to attest. They, they of course, find ways to dismiss it, but they go, oh, they, like, oh this is circumstantial. You know. oh, yeah. Another one. God is sovereign, yes. God is sovereign. What else? Mm-hmm. 
That's good. God is trustworthy when he, he can speak of his actions as past tense, even though to us they're in the future. I was doing some reading this week, um, and the author's talking about the kingdom of God, and he says that, you know, the Bible presents it, there's this age and the age to come, but God exists above and apart from those two spheres. And so he speaks about them simultaneously because he's above and past them. And I had to put the book down and think about that a while. <laughs> what else? That's right. He does. He knows the end from the beginning. Those are good. What else? Yes, yeah, Steve. That's right. That's good. And God, um, for those listening at home, Steve said, God is tenderhearted to support and uphold his people even in the middle of judging them. And God fights for his own, doesn't he? Like, he takes up for his own. Yes, Elaine. That's right. That's good. That's a good one. God alone is God, and he takes offense when people put themselves in his place. Okay. Anybody else? Anything else? All right. Well, let's pray. Thank you for the good participation, and we will... Uh, get ready for worship after we pray. Father, thank you that you are all of the things that we just mentioned here. Lord, would you um, grab hold of those around us um, who have abundant access to your word and could very easily read for themselves the judgments that you will pour out upon this creation for persistent and stubborn rebellion. You hold us accountable. Yet, Lord, we see here how gracious and patient and kind you are. We know that one day you will be worshipped for your holiness and your judgment and for how you avenge the blood of your saints. But we pray in the here and now in our neck of the woods, that you would be praised for your mercy. Would you get a hold of hearts among people around us to reach out for the salvation and amnesty that you so graciously provide? For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.